Michael for joining us uh, this evening and also to those who've chosen to uh, uh, join us from Gates Common Room. Uh, we have another contingent there who decided they were going to take advantage of uh, modern technology to uh, listen in on this evening's presentation. I'm just curious as I welcome all of you here, how, how many of you are in, on our campus or in Chove Chapel for the first time? Just Are there some folks here who are? Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you feel very much at home here when there's an opportunity to ask questions or participate. You should feel f fully engaged as the rest of us will. As you probably know if you've studied your program, tonight is the third of nearly a dozen speeches, panels, discussions in our symposium, Religion and Public Life, Why Be Afraid? I, I'm not sure I said that right. I was thinking about Michael Brooks this morning, who's pointed out you could say that, why be afraid? <laughs> you know, but there are a lot of different ways. But I, I think in, in, in the circumstance, it would be appropriate to explain something of the provenance of the subtitle, why be afraid? This phrase is attributed to Michael Gerson, advisor and former chief speechwriter speech writer for President George Bush. Gerson, who was invited to be a speaker at this symposium but had a scheduling conflict, contends that people should not be afraid of religious rhetoric and politics, and he wrote Bush's speeches with that in mind. Gerson asserts that religion is part of our culture and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I quote, there seems to me a genuine disagreement in public life when it comes to religion and rhetoric. There is a view that pluralism requires silence, that religious language violates the truce of tolerance in America, and moral arguments rooted in faith are off limits in public life. Wherever you sit on the ideological spectrum, I hope that you will find this four-day engagement, deep engagement, on religion and public life to be stimulating, to be illuminating, and hopefully even a bit uncomfortable. Now, I'm not really a speaker this evening. I'm simply welcoming you. I want to express appreciation, and I know that Gail Murphy will say more, um, to Michael and Kathy O'Connor for their sponsorship of this lecture. And I want to introduce to you one of the people, in fact, I should probably acknowledge, let me do this before I go on because I'm forgetting it someplace here. Um, I want to acknowledge the people who've put so much time and effort into the, into the symposium in case uh, you haven't had a chance to thank them. From our faculty, David Gardner and Gail Murphy-Geis, from the Dean's Office, Jeff Noblet and Victor Nelson Cisneros, our chaplain and his staff, Bruce Coriel and his team, uh, the Associate Dean of Students, Ginger Morgan, and Deborah Zarecki from the Dean of Students Office. A special word of appreciation to the two heaviest lifters, I suppose is one way. Heavy isn't the right way to describe either of them, but heavy lifters maybe. Uh, Jill Kluge and Lisa Ellis, who've been spectacular working on communications, and Beth Brooks in my office. Uh, thanks to all of you for your uh, help in making this happen. Now, thank you. Now let me 
introduce to you Professor Gail Murphy Geis of our sociology department, who will present our speaker. Gail holds her Bachelor of Arts degree from Westminster College, her Master of Divinity from Boston University, and her PhD from the University of Denver. Gail was one of the hardworking members of the campus committee that has really been planning this symposium for almost a year and a half. Um, it began as we were thinking about how we celebrate the 35th anniversary of the Colorado College Plan, known as our Block Plan. So please welcome Professor Gail Murphy-Geis, who will introduce this year's distinguished O'Connor Memorial Lecturer, Reverend Jim Wallace. Gail. As Dick mentioned, this is not only a symposium lecture, this is our annual O'Connor Lecture. Dan O'Connor was a student at Colorado College in the fall of 1990 and the winter of 1991. He, like many Colorado College students, was a committed social activist, committed to environmental issues, workplace democracy, cultural diversity, and equality, many of the same issues that Jim Wallace is committed to. He took part in protests, alternative spring break, he was an integral part of the Colorado College community for the short time that he was here. He died way too young in a car accident. And to, in memory of him, his parents, Kathy and Michael O'Connor, have put this lecture series into play. So first, they're here tonight with us. I'd like to thank Kathy and Michael for this gift of not only the lecture, but their son. As a way to introduce Jim, I'd like to start with some words from Daniel O'Connor. He said, I knew that I wanted to change the world at least a little bit. I didn't believe that any political system could create a good society. Change has to come through the heart. I think that Jim would agree with that. It's a great quote to set up our evening. I'm not going to tell you all the details of Jim's life. They're in your program, some of them, and I suspect many of you know him already. Let me just say this. Jim is known as a progressive evangelical, which means he says something that both pleases and annoys everyone. <laughs> I learned today in an earlier talk that he gave, uh, what do Bill Clinton and George W. Bush have in common? They both stopped inviting Jim Wallace to the White House. <laughs> uh, so if, if George Bush and Bill Clinton have trouble with Jim Wallace, who is he? One writer I found said that Jim's views are what is needed in this, these red and blue bifurcated times because he presents not a wishy-washy middle of the road, but a principled moral center. So without further ado, please help me welcome Jim Wallace. Well, thank you, Gail and uh, Dick Celeste and, um, and Kathy and Michael O'Connor. Thank you. It's, it was good to meet you tonight and to hear a little about your son, Dan. Uh, I hope, I love young activists, and I hope there are a lot of them here tonight. And I hope you find some vision tonight for being activists like Daniel was when he was here. 
It's good to be back to the springs. I love the land around this place. And I have a lot of friends here. And I've never been to Colorado College before. This is a beautiful campus. This is a great... And those, those uh, street lamps, it looks like Narnia at night. <laughs> I should know. I've seen the movie 144 times. I have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old. And your, um, your topic reminds me of a story from my son, Luke, who is now eight years old. Religion and public life, why, why be afraid? Um, when I'm not home, or when I'm on the road, I call my, my boys every day, sometimes a few times. And I remember when Luke was four, um, I called him that day. I was gone someplace. And we talked already two or three times. But I got back to the hotel room that night, and there was my little hotel phone light was blinking. And I picked it up, and I heard his little voice. And I smiled to hear him again. It had been two hours since we last talked, and a lot of stuff had happened. So he had to fill me in. He gave me the rundown, and then he closed with his signature sign-off. little four-year-old. He says, "Uh, Daddy, I love you, I like you, and you're incredible. Which is a wonderful thing for a dad to hear. But then he said something just out of the blue. I don't know where it came from. A four-year-old. And Daddy, he said... Daddy, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I heard Joy, his mother, draw in her breath. She hadn't been talking about anything that would lead to this. And these were the words of Jesus, often frequently, to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Be not afraid. So I like this, uh, this uh, way of getting at this subject, religion and public life. Why be afraid? But you know what? We're afraid because this is a very confusing topic. Religion in America, religion by itself is confusing. Then add politics, it gets really confusing. So I tell too many stories about my kids, but when Luke um, came up to Joy and I just a few years ago, uh, he said, Mommy, Daddy, I'm worried about... My friends, Max and Jonah, these are two little guys, second graders then, that were on my Little League baseball team that I get to coach on the weekends. He said, I'm worried they don't believe in God or Jesus. I think they're vegetarians. (laughs) He was confused. So Joy and I thought on the God's Politics book tour we should take him to Oregon, where he'd meet some godly vegetarians, which we did, and he got all straightened out. But the confusion goes deeper than the misunderstandings of a little boy. Uh, when they put you on book tours, they uh, put you on these TV shows, and some nights you do the O'Reilly Factor, and other nights you have fun. Uh, no, I didn't mean... <laughs> No, Bill and I are actually getting along. We reached kind of a little ceasefire, and we have a way of talking now. But the next night, I was on the John Stewart Daily Show, and that was more fun. <laughs> John is a very serious guy, but he's a funny guy. And so we had a great connection, great rapport, and we had a lot of fun that night in the show. But afterwards, the emails came by the thousands from young people. They said things like, I lost my faith because of television preachers. 
bad religious fundraising, pedophile priests, cover-up bishops, and White House theology. Or they said, amazing to me, they said, I didn't know you could be a Christian and care about poverty, or care about the environment, or care about the war in Iraq. I didn't know. When they heard, they got very excited. So I'd meet these, these young people in airports and hotels. They'd be at the desk or someplace, and, and they got all excited about this. So I'm in Detroit, my hometown, and I'm staying at the Days Inn one night. So maybe a 19-year-old African-American kid, she's the desk clerk. Welcome, Mr. Wallace, to the Days Inn. She said, you have an upgrade, an upgrade at the Days Inn. <laughs> I mean, these are the moments you live for on the road, you know. <clears throat> so can I take you to your room? Sure. So. We go back, and I said, I'm just curious, who gave me the upgrade? She said, well, I did. I saw John Stewart. I read your book. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> or I meet a 16-year-old kid in the airport one day. He said, I just wanted to shake your hand. You're the only Christian I see on TV and don't throw up afterwards. You know, <laughs> This is high praise. You know? But there's lots of confusion out there about this. This subject. Um, so when the book came out, God's Politics, we began, you know, the usual book signings, but they became town meetings almost from the start. And all these people were coming out, and, and I was enjoying watching them look at each other. Because here were people who, for a long time, had thought to themselves, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a person of faith, too, and that's not my faith. Those people who seem to speak, they think for all of us, they don't speak for me. Or I care about moral values, too, but I have more than two <laughs> moral values. And they'd walk away saying things like, you know, I don't feel alone anymore. This afternoon, two women came up after our session. And they said that. They said, you know, we always felt alone. I thought I was the only one who felt this way. And now I know that I'm not. So as I've traveled the country, there is something happening more than I even knew. Let me tell you who's been coming out to these town meetings, if you will, on faith and politics. They gave me a new phone at the office. I'm trying to learn how to turn it off. I'm never good at this stuff, but we'll see. If not, I'll just throw it to Phil Wagerman down here in the front row. Um, evangelicals are coming out. A whole new generation of young evangelical students who care more about poverty than gay marriage. They... They believe that when 30,000 children died yesterday and will today and again tomorrow because of lack of clean drinking water, diseases my kids and their friends will never die of and no food in their bellies, they have a hard time believing the Jesus they love 
would have it as his highest priority anti-gay marriage amendments in Ohio. They're coming forward and they're stepping up and they want their faith to mean something. They're tired of having their religion be about not doing stuff and being nice. They want their faith and lives to make a difference. There are two great hungers in our world today. Two great hungers. One is the hunger for spirituality. The other is the hunger for social justice. And the connection between the two is the one the world and a new generation are waiting for. The day I got to um, fill in for Ted Haggard on the panel, he's here in town, he's local, New Life Church. He's the head of the National Association of Evangelicals. And, and if you read their new document, which you should, called The Health of the Nations, you'll see concerns there, yes, about the sanctity of life, about family values, but also about the environment, about poverty, about HIV, about war and peace. The environment and poverty, HIV, AIDS, have become mainstream evangelical issues now. Catholics are coming out who don't think that they don't want to be told by a handful of bishops that there's only one issue on which they're allowed to vote. They see a whole kind of breadth of Catholic social teaching which talks about all the threats to human life. They remember a cardinal, my favorite from Chicago, named Cardinal Bernadin, who talked about a consistent ethic of life, a seamless garment where every threat to life is important. I was at Notre Dame, a whole room about this big of Catholic students, and during the election, and we talked about this, and these are Catholic kids who care about justice, they're against the war in Iraq, and they care about abortion. So one student raises her hand and she says, 4,000 lives were lost today because of abortion. How can I vote on anything else than that? I let the question hover just to see what would happen. Sure enough, a young man raised his hand and said, yes, but 9,000 lives were lost today because of HIV AIDS. What about them? Then somebody said, and 30,000 children died today because of hunger and disease. So these Catholic students decided after an hour and a half, there was no consistent ethic of life candidate running in the election. Or as I like to say sometimes, if I was an unborn child and I wanted the support of the far religious right, I should stay unborn as long as possible. Because once I'm born, I'm off the radar screen. No child care, health care, and that's just wrong. That's not pro-life. You know? So they're coming out. Then a whole, lot of, a whole lot of folks from black churches are coming because, you know, this whole religion, public life, it's been a pretty white conversation. When the media says evangelicals think this or that, they mean white evangelicals. They don't mean the historic black churches. So they were all coming out. A whole lot of mainline churches, the great denominations, they were all coming out. Um, my wife is uh, 
was one of the first women ordained in the Church of England 15 years ago. And, uh, and now she's here in this country, an Episcopalian. And a lot of those folks feel like they've been, well, let's say, dissed by the whole conversation. Disrespected, as if they're not even people of faith by certain of our friends on the religious right. So they were all coming. But a lot of rabbis were coming, because they liked the sound I was applying Isaiah to domestic policy and Micah to foreign policy. And they wanted to be in that conversation. Then a lot of young Muslims were coming out. I teach at Harvard part-time, and I've got in my class, some of my brightest young students are Muslim women who have a very different vision of their faith than Osama bin Laden does. And they're very smart, and they may well be the future of Islam. Then a whole lot of folks who would say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm telling you, it's a new denomination in America. So I met, you know, Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream guy, Ben Cohen, tells me he's spiritual, but not religious. I said, Ben, you promised some free ice cream. You could be the bishop of the new denomination. <laughs> so, so he's thinking about that. He told me he was thinking about it. Last night in Denver at the Tattered Cover bookstore, I had, as always, as often, two young men who said, I'm, I'm agnostic. But I felt welcome tonight. Because you say that America needs a new moral discourse on public life. Something that we all need and that we're all needed for. So I want to be part of that too. So all these people coming out, they all want to be in the conversation. Half the crowds, at least, are under 30 every single time. Half of them are under 25. A whole new generation is rising to this conversation. And it's going to change a lot of things. So after about a month or two in the road, I went to the East and the West and the Midwest, the South, Texas. <laughs> and after a while, I began to make an announcement which I'll make tonight. And I know where we are. <laughs> I know what city I'm in. And I want to make the announcement here, too. I've been traveling the length and breadth of this country, and I'm now convinced that the monologue of the religious right is finally over, and a new dialogue has just begun. So there's a lot of new conversation going on. Uh, we had, a, we had a, a preacher in D.C. at the prayer breakfast this year, and he said, you know, it's kind of weird, man, kind of weird having a, a rock star as the prayer breakfast preacher. I'm not a man of the cloth unless leather counts. And Bono, the preacher, said, God is in the slums in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity in lives. And God is with us 
if we are with them. Afterwards, I said to him, I said, that's the most religious I've ever heard you. He says, yeah, I'm getting carried away. (laughs) A lot of folks are getting carried away with this thing called faith and applying it to politics. Now, I believe in the separation of church and state, for the record. I don't think that means the segregation of moral values from public life or the banishing of religious language from the public square. I think there's a way to do this that is democratic, pluralistic, that is faithful to our diversity in this country. Dr. King did it best, Bible in one hand, Constitution in the other. He convened a moral discourse on our public life, and the time has come for that again. The subtitle of, of the book, God's Politics, is why the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it, which kind of says what I want to say. The right, for so long, has been so comfortable with the language of faith and religion, values and, and God, so much so you think that they sometimes believe they own the territory, own religion, own faith own values, own God. But then they narrow everything to just one or two issues, important issues. We need a new and better moral discourse on issues like abortion, like family values and what it means to be family. Neither party, in my view, has a pro-family agenda. One party hardly ever talks about families. The other has an anti-gay agenda, but not a pro-family agenda. So let's have a better conversation. But my goodness, I am an evangelical Christian. And when I find 2,000 verses in my Bible about poor people, I insist fighting poverty is a moral values issue too. And so is protecting the environment, which we Christians call God's creation. So a whole new generation talks now about creation care. In Philadelphia, about three nights ago, we had in a monsoon Philadelphia rain, a whole church as big as this, full of people, to have a service and rally about global warming as a religious issue, as a life issue. And now we have an estimate that 600,000 Iraqis have been killed since our war began. And almost as many Americans have died there as died on September 11th. 20,000 more crippled and maimed for the rest of their lives. So I want to insist that When you go to war, whether you go to war, and whether you tell the truth about going to war is also a moral values question. At dinner tonight, somebody said that God's politics was sort of the beginning of this whole religious left. But I want to speak to that and say that I don't think the country is hungry 
for a religious left to replace a religious right. I think the country is hungry for what I would call a new moral center. Not a mushy political middle, but don't go left, don't go right, go deeper to the moral choices and challenges that lie just beneath our political debate. My hometown in Washington, D.C. has a way of handling political issues. Here's what they do. And you're going to see a lot of this in the next few weeks. They take an issue, and they do, want to do two things they want to make. First of all, they want to make you afraid of it. Then they want to blame it on the other side. Then they take a poll to see whose spin won. The election is just the last poll. It's a politics of blame and a politics of fear. Both sides do it. But the country, I believe, is hungry for a politics of solutions and a politics of hope. Who will offer that kind of leadership? The country, I think, is just begging for right now. I got to speak at a place very different than a great university like this. It was... Or a or a town hall meeting, or a church. It was the inmates at Sing Sing Prison <laughs> wrote and said, could you come talk to us, the prisoners? It sounded interesting. So I wrote back and said, sure, when do you want me to come? And this young brother writes back on behalf of his, his, uh, his uh, colleagues. And he says, uh, well, we're free most nights. <laughs> he, uh, he says he was a real comedian this kid he says we're kind of a captive audience here so we went and worked out the details with the warden and the authorities and they gave us a room down in the bowels of that infamous sing sing prison upstate new york you know the phrase up the river that's sing sing up the hudson river so i got put in this room left alone with these 80 guys for five hours one night i'll never forget it one of the young men said to me in the course of our conversation. He said, you know, Jim, we are, all of us here at Sing Sing, almost the whole prison, we're from just four or five neighborhoods in New York City. The whole prison from four or five neighborhoods. He said, it's like a train. You get on that train when you're nine or ten years old, and that train ends up here. At Sing Sing. But this young brother had had a spiritual conversion inside the walls of that prison. He was part of a program run by the New York Theological Seminary training masters of divinity inside the walls of Sing Sing Prison. You become a preacher inside the joint. And you graduate when your sentence is up. He looked at me in the eye and he said, when I get out, I want to go back and stop that train. When I was in New York a year or two later, leading a town meeting on poverty, guess who was up front? Now back home, trying to stop that train. That's what I call a faith-based initiative. And, and he understood something that I want to... Um, to say tonight, which is that faith 
is for the big things. The big stuff, where, where the odds seem to be against us, where it's too hard, too big, it's too much for us, we think. That's why we call it faith. The Bible says, my Bible says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what can you move? What can you move? Mountains. We've got some evangelicals here tonight. We're at their Bibles. we got some mountains to move tonight. Big ones. One of the signs of, of miracles in Washington, D.C. is now, in my own town, we have... We have Democrats saying the word God out loud. It's really kind of exciting. Uh, one of them is on the cover of Time magazine this week. Just came out Monday. Barack Obama spoke to our conference last summer. And he spoke to this question of the other side, how the left doesn't get it. Barack said in that speech, more fundamentally, the discomfort of some progressives with any hint of religion, has often prevented us from effectively addressing issues in moral terms. Some of the problem here is rhetorical. If we scrub language of all religious content, we forfeit the imagery and terminology through which millions of Americans understand both their personal morality and social justice. Imagine Lincoln's second inaugural address without reference to the judgments of the Lord. Or King's I Have a Dream speech without reference to all of God's children. Their summoning of a higher truth helped inspire what had seemed impossible and moved the nation to embrace a common destiny. Our failure as progressives to tap into the moral underpinnings of the nation is not just rhetorical, though, Our fear of getting preachy may also lead us to discount the role that values and culture play in some of our most urgent social problems. After all, he concludes, the problems of poverty and racism, the uninsured and unemployed, are not simply technical problems. In search of the perfect ten-point plan, they are rooted in both societal indifference and individual callousness in the imperfections of human beings. Solving these problems, says Barack Obama, will require changes in government policy, yes, but also it will require changes in hearts and a change in minds. I see a new generation wanting to move mountains. Some mountains are fast-moving urban trains on their way to inevitable destinations like Sing Sing Prison. What an image. A train beginning in only certain zip codes on its way to places like that prison. Or two billion, three billion of God's children, half of us living on less than $2 a day. You want to talk about the, the gorilla in the room in foreign policy conversations that isn't being talked about? When there is that level of inequality and injustice, 
It's the foundation for so many of our conflicts, but we don't talk about it. That's a mountain to move. Global warming is a mountain to move. I would say today that politics is failing to solve our deepest crises. Poverty, HIV, AIDS, global warming, Darfur, this morning in the newspapers, we had an ad, Evangelicals for Darfur, Ted Haggard signed it. The head of the Christian Coalition signed it. Tony Campolo signed it. Evangelicals who often disagree coming together on this crisis in Darfur, which politics can't solve. When politics can't solve our crises, you don't abandon politics and just go to social service where we, where we take care of the people who are victims of our crisis. You can't keep pulling bodies out of the river and not go upstream to see what or who is throwing them in. But I don't ask young people to join politics anymore, but to change it, to move it, to transform it. And what changes politics? Always, always, our social movements and the best ones have always had spiritual foundations. I'm basically a 19th century evangelical, born in the wrong century. Because back then, in the 19th century, evangelicals were also abolitionists. They helped lead the battle against slavery. They fought for women's suffrage, for child labor law reform. Charles Finney was the Billy Graham of his day. He was the evangelist, and he invented what we now know as the altar call. Do you know why? Because Finney wanted to sign up his converts for the anti-slavery campaign. That's why we first had an altar call. You know, evangelicals, when they want to, um, uh, to bond... They always share their um, conversion stories. It's sort of how we bond with each other, you know. So I thought I would do that tonight because I want to bond with all of you. So I've had many, but the first two will do. See, evangelicals, we need to do this a lot, over and over again. Uh, the first one, I was, I was six years old and uh, in my little Detroit church, a Plymouth Brethren church, and my parents were nervous because, well, I was six. I was getting up in years, and I hadn't been saved yet, to use the language of my childhood. And I was uh, uh, told that a revival preacher was coming on a Sunday night, and uh, we were told about him for weeks, and it sounded, well, pretty scary to me, actually. And the night came, and we're kind of full tonight, but if we weren't, the, the front row would be empty, I'm telling you, because... People feel the closer that they are to a sermon, the more impact it'll have on their lives. But all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row, you know. So I was among the unsaved kids, so I had to sit in the, right where Phil is sitting there. And this preacher began to preach, and he was everything he was billed to be. He was powerful, he was fiery, he was scary. And it seemed like he pointed his finger right at me. And he said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by 
yourself. Got my attention. And I realized that at six years old, I'd have had a five-year-old sister to support. (laughs) So I asked my mother how to fix this thing, and she told me about not the wrath of God, but the love of God for a little boy. God wanted me to be God's child. I said, cool. I signed up, and I repented of the sin and degradation of my first six years, which in my case was rather significant, you know. And I signed up and, and uh, joined, you know, vacation, Bible school, youth group, all the rest. My second conversion was the one that had the, the deeper impact. I'm 14 now, paying attention to my city, listening to my city. I'm reading the papers now. I'm hearing the news, and I'm wondering why we live the way we do in white Detroit. And life seems so different in black Detroit just a few miles or blocks away. You're too young to ask that question, I was told. Or, we don't know why it's that way, but it's always been that way. Or, finally, an honest answer, if you keep asking that question, you're going to get into lots of trouble. And that proved to be true. So I went into the city, and I found the other evangelical churches. The black churches, they love the same Jesus, they read the same Bible, they sang out of the same hymn book, and made it sound so much better than we did. (laughs) And I came home with new friends, new answers, and new questions. And one night, a church elder said to me, Jim, you don't understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism that's political. And our faith is personal. I think that's the night that I left my childhood faith and church. And within, in my head, in my heart at least, within two years I was gone. I found my home in the civil rights movements and the student movements of my generation. I didn't have words to go around that experience back then. But I do now. And the words are these, God is personal, but never private. That faith is meant to change our lives so that we can be enlisted in God's purposes in the world. So two weeks ago, Sojourners previewed a movie in Los Angeles that you'll hear about in March of 2007. The same folks who did Narnia, Walden Films, have done a new film called Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce, a British parliamentarian who was converted in the Wesleyan revival and he wrote the anti-slave trade legislation. So Wesley was preaching, and I know there are some Methodists here tonight, um, and this guy named John Newton got converted. He wrote a song called Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He wasn't just suffering from existential angst. He was a wretch. He was a slave trader. He got converted, and he became an abolitionist. He met this young, bright lawyer, political rising star named Wilberforce, and he got converted, and he was the one who put forward the slave trade legislation 30 times. 
until it finally passed 200 years ago next March. Wilberforce died three days later because his work was done. You see, people of faith have done big things before. And they will do big things again. And the reason I get so weary of this left-right confrontation, this foolish battle back and forth, is that we miss the power of what faith is supposed to be. Faith is meant to change the things that nobody thinks can be changed. Faith sees how things can be different and then bets its life on what it sees. So the choice that a new generation has to make, I think, is not what I was told as a kid. I was told the choice is belief and secularism. You ever heard that one? Yeah, in this town you've heard that one. <laughs> there's this thing called belief, and then there's secular humanism that's prowling around, it's going to eat your children. You know, <laughs> There are some issues there, but the real choice isn't that one. Here's the real choice. The big choice in our time, choice for a new generation, it's a choice between cynicism and hope. That's the big choice. You see, I like the cynics because they see the world realistically. No rose-colored glasses here. They see it as it is, and the cynics are usually against all the bad stuff. They really are. And for a while, they got out and tried to change it, maybe, for a bit. But it didn't change, and they began to feel disillusioned, disappointed, and after a while, kind of vulnerable out there. So they stepped back to a place called cynicism, where you're still against all the bad stuff but you don't think it ever could really change. So cynicism becomes a buffer against commitment. That's what it is. Cynicism is where you still have all the kind of politically correct views and you're against all the bad stuff and you're kind of, you're kind of okay, but you don't really think any of this could ever really change. So it becomes a buffer against your commitment. Hope, on the other hand, is not a, a feeling. It's not a, a, a personality type. It, hope is a choice. It's a decision you make. Because of this thing that we call faith. My Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Or my best paraphrase is hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. That's how every big change has always come. Never starts with a majority. Majorities never change anything. They just, at the end of the day, they just say, okay. That's okay with us. Go ahead. It's always a critical mass of minorities that believe that change is possible. 
and then bet their lives on it. That's what we're looking for now. We don't need a majority. We do need a critical mass of a new generation who want to bet their lives on the big things changing. Because the other choice you've got to make, those of your students, is this one, you know, between career and vocation. Career is where you assemble your your assets and you do a resume and you try to find a ladder of ascent and you try to start on the highest rung on the ladder that you can. My Harvard students think they deserve at least rung four because they're from Harvard. You know. But vocation is not the same as career. Vocation is not assembling your assets. It's, it's discerning your gift. What's your gift? What do you lose track of time when you're doing that thing? What's the passion stuff, the soul stuff, the gut stuff, way down deep? What, what do you feel most deeply about? What are you really good at? What will you probably put on this planet to do? Where your gift meets the crushing needs of the world. That's your vocation. Right there. Where your gift meets the crushing needs of the world. That's your vocation. I don't care if you're religious or not, or what your tradition is, but this is the heart of faith. Right here. All we need is a critical mass of a new generation to make that choice of hope over cynicism, find their gift, discern their vocation, and join a movement. Because movements are what change things. Always have and always will. I want to finish with a story and then give you a commission, and then we'll have a little discussion. The story is at the end of the God's Politics hardback book tour, we got back to one of my favorite places that I love to go, Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. If you're a preacher, you got to love Atlanta. It's a great place to preach. And I went back to one of my most favorite places to preach in Atlanta or the whole country, the Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. grew up and where he used to preach. It was back there at Ebenezer that I saw my old friend Joe Roberts, who was retiring, and he welcomed me warmly. He says, this is, this is the new Israel, the new sanctuary. You've been to the old Israel, the old historic Auburn Avenue church. This is the new Israel. It was 2,000 seats, but it seemed intimate still, the way it was constructed. Every seat full that night, great service, great event, and he said, remember the first time you came, and I began to think back. Back when they decided finally to have an official birthday celebration for our nation's greatest moral leader. 
Ebenezer thought they'd have a, a peace and justice service. And so they invited this young white preacher, and I was humbled by the invitation, but I was terrified to be in that pulpit. And sure enough, I got there, I got in the pulpit, and I just literally froze the history of that pulpit was so intimidating. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had preached here. His father, Daddy King, had preached here. The whole movement had preached here. And what was this young white kid doing in that pulpit? I was, well, I was a bit tepid. I said something like, well, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he, he was like for justice and, 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 and peace and, and, and probably we should be too. I mean, it was powerful. <laughs> and this voice down lower left side boomed back at me. Oh, help him, Lord, help him! <laughs> he said, come on, young man, you're supposed to preach! And so I did a little bit. Oh, you're not there yet! You're not there yet! And in that wonderful call and response in the black church, he began to well me and amen me and mercied me until I was preaching and sweating and prancing. And I preached my heart out, you know. And I ran down there afterwards in, in the amen corner of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Deacon Johnson stood up. I said, you just, you just pulled that sermon out of me. This tall. I asked Joe Roberts if he was still alive. And he'd passed now. But he said, he put his hands on my shoulders. He said, that's okay, young man. I've raised up many a preacher in my day. <laughs> and it struck me in that remembering how that pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church, that pulpit of the Civil Rights Movement, that pulpit pulled out our best stuff. We, as the American people, got some bad stuff in us. We do. And we got some good stuff in us, too. Bad religion pulls out our worst stuff, our divisions, our prejudices, our ignorance, our hatreds, our fears, our violence. It pulls it right out of us. And then sometimes they turn those things into wedges to divide us for political purposes. Good religion pulls out our best stuff, our hunger for justice, our compassion, our desire to welcome people to the table, to be inclusive, to make sure there's room for everybody at the table. We've had a lot of bad religion for a lot of years. I think the country is now hungry for some good religion. The answer to bad religion isn't secularism. The answer to bad religion is better religion. So I want to leave you with a commission tonight. Those of you who might be considering your future, your vocation, your, your time, the churches ask you for the edges of your lives, and that's all they get. A new generation is hungry for an agenda, worthy of your talents and gifts and energy and the whole of your lives. The commission's from a friend of mine who is a kid from my neighborhood. 
She was from the streets of D.C. She was smart, so smart, she went to Yale and got a Ph.D. And when you're young and black and female with a Yale Ph.D., you can write your ticket and go wherever you want. But she came back to her streets where the children of the streets had won her heart. And Lisa Sullivan became the best street organizer I ever knew. She used rap and hip-hop. She hugged. She scolded. She confronted. She loved. She wrapped her big arms around a whole generation of street kids. She was amazing. She was a rising star. She was the future. She was on my board. She was my friend. And I got a call one day that Lisa's big heart had a heart ailment nobody knew about, especially Lisa. And within weeks, Lisa Sullivan, not yet 40 years old, was gone. Marion Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund and I and others held each other at her graveside and just wept because Lisa was the future. But she left us a whole generation of kids that she touched, and she leaves us, I think, a commission. It's the epilogue in my book, but it's really a commission, not an epilogue. And I leave it with you tonight. When people would say to Lisa, the problem, Lisa, it's too big. The streets, the violence, the, the drugs, the corruption, the apathy, it's too big. The problem is too big. And, and we are too small. Our organizations, our staff, our budgets, our resources, our faith, our God. It's too big and we're too small. And, and Lisa, we don't have any leaders anymore. Like Martin Luther King Jr. We don't have any leaders now. She'd get angry, very angry. She said, don't say it's too big and we're too small. And never say, we don't have any leaders anymore. Don't you understand, she'd say, and these were her words, don't you understand, we are the ones that we have been waiting for. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. We've got some mountains to bring down, to move, to move out of the way. But you know, people of faith have done this before. When religion wasn't a wedge to divide people, but a bridge to bring them together on the biggest stuff. We've done this before. We can do it again. We, no matter what our religions are, we can all be people of faith if we believe that betting your life on unseen realities can make them real. That's what faith has always meant. My friends, don't be afraid to talk about religion and public life. Use your faith to change public life. Because maybe, maybe you at Colorado College, you may be the ones that we have been waiting for. Thank you very much.
standing ovation for a preacher at Colorado College. Uh, let me say three things before uh, Jim entertains your questions. Uh, for those of you who haven't read Jim's book, we have copies in the back. And if we run out, we have more in the bookstore. And in fact, we have books from all of our speakers in the symposium in the bookstore. So please check those out. Also, during the question and answer period, we'll be passing around sign-up sheets. If you would like to get on the Sojourners mailing list and find out more about Jim's work and his organization, please sign those and we'll send them on to him. And last, he'd like to engage as many of you as possible. So he asked me to remind you, no long speeches, just questions. So come to the mic, and he will recognize you. We'll have a little bit of a town meeting here at Colorado College. Don't be shy. Just get up and ask or make a comment, but leave room for your, for your friends. Yes, please. Um, I'm just going to go back to something you said at the very, very beginning. Um, what does separation of church and state look like to you? I'm really just curious. You know, something that Dr. King never did, he never said anything like this. He never said, I'm a Christian. So it's a Judeo-Christian country, so I get to win. <laughs> he never said that. He wasn't afraid to invoke Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and Jesus. That's who I am. That's why I believe what I do. But he knew he had to win the debate. He had to win a debate about the common good. He had to persuade his fellow Americans, whether Baptist or Catholic or Jewish or unbelievers, he had to convince them that a civil rights act in 1964 was good for all Americans and voting rights in 65. So he, he, he made a moral turn. He, he took his faith. When he got to the public square, he made a moral turn, and he had, a, he had us do a moral discourse on politics. I don't want to see religious litmus tests for politics. I don't want to see exegetical debates about Leviticus on the floor of the U.S. Senate. But I do think we need, we have a right to ask of our candidates what their moral compass is, what's going to guide their leadership and policy direction. But then all of us who care about a moral politics can be part of this conversation, whether or not we're religious, you see. So I don't want to, I don't want to push people of faith off the stage. They just have to be, religion must be disciplined by democracy. And that's what, to me, the separation of church and state means. It means that we're free to, to say why we believe what we do, what motivates our, our conscience. But when we get to that public square, we, we don't Jews vote for Jews, Catholic, we don't vote for people because of their religion. We want to know what the moral compass is. Religion has no monopoly on morality. Yet all of us should freely invoke whatever our faith is and bring that to the public square. Please. When you described the difference and the distinction between cynicism and hope and, and described how hope and faith can move mountains, 
I couldn't help but think of the attitudes I think the Bush administration took toward invading Iraq, which were, we just have to do this, uh, and our hope will make democracy happen, and we'll top, topple Saddam Hussein, and we have faith that this will work. Uh, how, and particularly a young person, but how are we all to sort of see the difference? What tests or what intuitive understandings can we bring to bear to, to tell the difference between the kind of faith that leads to invading Iraq and the kind of faith that moves the mountains that we all agree need to be moved? I want to distinguish between a kind of faith which ignores facts. In my cynical moments, I have often thought this must be a faith-based administration because there is no global warming, Iraq's going well, and the way to help the poor is give more money to rich people. Uh, That's not what I mean. I think you see the facts as they are, but you don't let the facts limit your imagination about what's possible. In other words, I said today in the panel discussion, religion can lead either to to an easy certainty, which we as human beings seem to feel a need for so often, or it can lead to a deeper reflection. And I think that deeper reflection now is what we're called to. I I don't quibble with the president's personal faith. I've met him. We've We've had some conversations in the past, not in recent years. Uh, My objections or my disagreements are with his theology, not his personal faith. Uh, For example, if you can't see the face of evil in September 11th, you are suffering, I would say, from some kind of postmodern relativism, perhaps. But to say they are evil and we are good is bad theology that leads to bad foreign policy. So theology is important when it comes to public policy. Please. Um, In the the 21st century, science has become, well, technology, I suppose, looms so large that it's become kind of a religion to a lot of people. Uh, Right now, Richard Dawkins has a book that's ninth on the New York Times bestseller list. He and uh, Daniel Dennett, many other scientists, uh, are not only opposed to fundamentalist religion, but make statements right to the point that say that religion itself is the source of evil in this world. How do you respond to that kind of uh, mindset? Any of us who are religious must be honest about the role religion has has played. Religion has been oppressive, divisive, violent, hierarchical, patriarchal, all of that. I would say the worst things we've done to each other as human beings have often been done in God's name, the name of religion. And yet religion has also been a catalytic, transforming, motivating, mobilizing force for the greatest reform movements in our history. The slave owners gave the Bible to the slaves in order to turn their eyes to heaven and take them off of their plight on the earth. 
But in that same book, the slaves found Moses and Jesus, who became the foundation for their liberation struggle. So religion is always a paradox. Uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam have their fundamentalist traditions. I am an evangelical. I am not a fundamentalist. I'm opposed to fundamentalism. Contrary to fundamentalism, all of those traditions have what I would call a prophetic tradition, a prophetic faith tradition. It talks about inclusion and equity and equality and, 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 and the poor and always a new relationship between men and women, uh, a whole new way of looking at war and peace. And I still think the best answer, I disagree with those authors who say the best answer to bad religion is secularism. I think the best answer to bad religion is better religion. But those of us who are religion are, we have to be honest about the failures of our own traditions and, in fact, build the kind of movements that can turn bad religion into good faith. Please, next. Sorry. Um, I see your point about the difference between good religion and bad religion and their power. Um, but my question is about when the lines between good religion and bad religion start to blur, and then who decides what's good religion, what's bad religion. For example, I have some good friends who have some pretty terrible injuries, and med medical marijuana really helps them. Um, but that issue is really, I mean, it's, it's a gray area. What do we do in the gray areas? Well, we, we, with gray areas, don't make them into black and white. Yeah, religion shouldn't be afraid of gray. Religion shouldn't be afraid of gray. There are, life is complicated. There are some things that are absolutely clear to me. 30,000 kids shouldn't have died today needlessly. Bono calls it stupid poverty. It is stupid poverty. It goes on because we don't care enough to stop it. We could stop it. it wouldn't, it's, not, it's not rocket science. But there are other things that are complicated, that are gray. Uh, all of our debates about stem cell and, and you know, medical marijuana, these are, these are they're good people of faith on different sides of those questions. So you have to decide you know, where, you, you know, where you're going to kind of put your life down and where you're going to listen. And hopefully we're always listening, but sometimes not just dialoguing, but putting our life down on some things that really um, call for that kind of, of response. Uh, um, today in this press conference call, this morning I did from Denver, it was extraordinary, this ad signed by 28 evangelical leaders uh, across the spectrum. We disagree on a lot of things, but on Darfur we have been brought together. I mean, each day, people, each and every day, people are killed. Each and every day, women are raped. Each and every day, villages are burned. And each and every day, the world calls it genocide and then lets it go on. And politics is letting it go on. So we said it's time for people of faith to act. And so we would disagree on lots of other things, but on this we have come together, and the passion on the, there, there's not a lot of passion often in press conferences, but there was this morning across the political spectrum. So there are areas that I just don't know the answer to, and I 
want to listen, and I want to talk, and I want to learn more than I know now, and try and be more understanding and more compassionate, and, and try to find some ways forward. And there are other places I just kind of put my life down, and I say, no, no, no more of this, no more of this, this has to stop. But religion shouldn't be afraid of gray, shouldn't be afraid of, afraid of complication. It's not always easy and not always clear. It's, it's sometimes more clear than we want to admit, and sometimes a lot less. Thank you. Perhaps there really isn't much of a distinction, but could you tell me what the difference is between an evangelical Christian and a non-evangelical Christian? Because I'm not sure which I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought we'd have an altar call tonight at the end here. First <laughs> altar call at Colorado College? Maybe, maybe not. Um, the word evangelical goes back to the word evangel, which means good news. And Jesus used that word in his opening riff, his, his uh, mission statement at Nazareth, his, uh, what I call his Nazareth Manifesto. <laughs> he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach, bring the evangel, good news, to poor people. So evangelicals meant to be good news. That's not the first phrase that would be associated with it today. You know? But that's what it's supposed to be. Usually evangelicals, historically, it's two things. They care about uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Bible. But, you know... Right now, there are so many political orthodoxies that seem to be religious ones that it gets confused. We went for God's politics to Nashville. In Nashville, you don't do book signings and lectures. You do concerts. So we had a God's politics concert. We had, we had Jars of Clay, Buddy Miller, Ashley Cleveland, Emmylou Harris sang, I Preach. We sold out this theater two, two times in one night. It was really fun. And then uh, I got interviewed by this guy. He's, um, he's, I'm a secular Jewish country music songwriter and disc jockey. <laughs> but I love your stuff. <laughs> and I think it's a movement growing now, and you've got to have a name for the movement. I got a suggestion. I said, what's that? He said, remember now, he's secular Jewish country music songwriter and disc jockey. Call yourselves the Red Letter Christians. You know that stuff that Jesus said, the red stuff in the Bible? I love the red shit, he said. <laughs> the rest I can do without, he said. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole lot of people uh, that, that love the sound of this kind of the, the, the good news, the, the evangel, the Jesus stuff. I, I met some kids last night at the Tattered Cover. They were asking questions from the back, and good questions. They came up and said, we're members of a church. I'm the worship director, and he's the associate pastor. What's the name of your church? The best name for a church I've ever heard. We're from the scum of the earth church. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of church Jesus would love, you know? The scum of the earth church. We're all, we, know, we all admit we're the scum of the earth. That's why we've got to go to church, you know? So I think there's a lot of, you know, Shane Claiborne's a good friend of mine. He just wrote a book called uh, The Irresistible Revolution. And I was with him in Philadelphia. He's got a little place called The Simple Way. They just, they just live on nothing. They just live on the streets, and they're just all the time just taking care of folks. Shane makes his own clothes. He's kind of modern-day Gandhi. And, and, you know, these kids are just good news to everybody that meets them. 
You know, I mean, everyone just says, how could you not want to have people like that in your neighborhood? So it's supposed to be good news. And it hasn't been good news for a long time. And that's what has to change. I was going to ask what's going to end up being a follow-up on that. You talk about seeing a lot of young people and looking around here, maybe not so young. Uh, There's the young and the young at heart. (laughs) Seeing a lot of the young young and young at heart evangelicals who are becoming or are progressive, and yet maybe it's just living in Colorado Springs, but it seems as if the trend in evangelicalism is heading towards a much more fundamentalist undoing maybe 50 years worth of neo-evangelical work. How do you, how would you propose bringing the conversation about in that kind of bifurcation is a term you used earlier, in that kind of bifurcating environment? Or do you even see it bifurcating like that? I think it's going the other way. I mean, I'm really hopeful by what, I, what I'm seeing is making me very hopeful. Uh, we'll be at Bethel University uh, next week in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Twin Cities. And what's happening there is, is pretty amazing. There's all-day events planned. We're going to have this conversation about faith and politics. And, you know, the kind of the religious right, the press says, well, but there's still more of them than there are of you. I said, yeah, probably so, but their numbers are declining and our numbers are growing. Well, they're pretty organized. Yeah, they are, but, you know, uh, we're getting organized too. Um, We started the group called the Red Letter Christians, based on this guy in Nashville. And Brian McLaren, Amy Sullivan, who will be here for your conference. You've got to come back and hear Amy. She is, she is amazing. Brian McLaren, Tony Campolo, Robert Franklin, Shane Claiborne, uh, uh, um, uh, Diana Butler-Bass. We've got a, a blog now, God's Politics blog. It's uh, godspolitics.com, I think. You can see all these people all over the country. There are these voices rising up. And I think the old fundamentalist stuff is losing ground. A poll was taken, gee, two weeks ago that said that the Republican uh, political base has lost 21% since 2004 in the evangelical community. Why? Because people care about more issues now than just two. 21% loss is a big deal in Washington. They're paying attention. Uh, Now there are Republican friends of mine who talk about wanting to take back their party from the religious right. So I see a lot of signs. Uh, You know, now Rick Warren says, I found those 2,000 verses, you know, on poverty. How do they miss them? I went to two seminaries. I got a PhD. How do they miss this purpose of God? When I met him this past year, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, all he talked about was, was Rwanda and his peace plan for Africa. He's obsessed now by poverty. Bill Hybels, the Willow Creek Association, 11,000 megachurches. And what is on his mind and heart is racism and poverty. At his big conference in August this past year, downloaded to 70,000 conservative evangelical pastors, the main speaker was Bono. 
You know, so a lot of things are moving and changing. And I really think the religious right is in, a, is in decline. And I see a whole new kind of energy rising up. So we got a long way to go, but I'm actually pretty hopeful. But let me just say one thing about this. Um, they had a thing called Justice Sunday, the religious right, this past year in Louisville. And, and they, they said those who didn't support the president's judicial nominations were not people of faith. That's what they said. I'm not exaggerating. That's what they said. So we had a service there in, in contrast to that. But I was reminded of the time Dr. King went to jail in Birmingham and wrote a letter, a letter from a Birmingham jail, to clergy who opposed him on issues of discrimination and, and violence against black people. Clear gospel issue. King never said that those ministers who opposed him, he never said they weren't people of faith. He never attacked their faith. He challenged their faith. He, he pushed them to go deeper in their faith. He wanted to dialogue with them on their faith. And I said that day, and I'll say here, as the right begins to decline, and whatever you call whatever is happening now begins to grow, we must never treat our opponents the way they have treated many of us. And, and practically, practically, here's what it means. If you decide not to demonize or personalize your disagreements with the other side, then you can go to them when you need to on something like Darfur, and they'll work with you because you've never attacked them personally. You may disagree on issues, but if they trust you and even if they like you and you have a relationship with them, if some of them are your friends, which some of them are my friends, even if we disagree, then you can find the stuff that you can build some common ground with. So. I think things are changing, but we have to never treat people who disagree with us the way we've been treated by some of our friends on the religious right. Please. Let's take the line of people who are sitting on the ground here. There's one, two, three, four, and those, those would be our last four questions. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for um, bringing me back to to matters of faith in my own life um, after reading your book. And my question is, I know that the Bush administration isn't the source of all evil in this world. Um, the Bush administration? Isn't the source of all evil in this world. I know some people question that. But um, I, I guess um, you speak about cynicism versus hope. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like in our world today, the sources of the cynicism, um, including the Bush administration, are impervious to um, the efforts of protesters and people of our generation um, trying to make a difference and change things. And my question is what specific um, methods or examples or things need to take place that you see um, to change things? Um, what, what are going to be the things that our generation will, will do and hope to help to change our world, and what do you see occurring with okay. that? Good, terrific question. Uh, there's, there's a chapter in God's Politics called 
um, protest is good, alternatives are better. When the war in Iraq was, was when we were headed down that road, it looked like it was going to happen. Some of us went, the president wouldn't speak to us, even though he talked to us on poverty and other issues. He wouldn't talk to us on Iraq. But Tony Blair did. We went and saw Tony Blair, and I talked about that at some length. But Tony Blair, in the end, decided to go with his friend George Bush and not to pursue what I hoped he would as a third way. Tony Blair loves third ways, you know, but he didn't this time. So we came home and we put forward this thing called a six-point plan. It was a way of, of disarming Saddam Hussein and removing him from power without bombing the children of Baghdad. It was a serious plan, another way to solve the problem. And it was getting traction in the UN, uh, the British Parliament, in the Vatican, and even in our own State Department. They had us come and present the plan uh, two weeks before the war. Um, but then the war began. And uh, Claire Short, who was, the under, who was Secretary of State in the British Cabinet for International Affairs, she thought if that plan had been out a month or six weeks earlier, in the Parliament at least, there would have been a more of a, a serious consideration of an alternative. And so I remember when the war was looking inevitable and the plan was getting traction but was going to fall short. I was away and, and our little son Jack decided to come a month early and I was going home from this last trip to do my, my uh, birth vigil with Joy and I got the call from Joy, labor had begun, so I rushed home and, and we're talking the whole way, my cell phone's on. I get in labor and delivery and um, I'm getting calls on my cell phone because I had left it on from British cabinet ministers and parliamentarians saying, is this a good time to discuss a six-point plan? <laughs> and Joy, being the trooper, she says, take the call, stop the war, I'm not pushing yet. You know? <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and it, it just changed the way we started thinking about, I've done a lot of protests in my life. I've been in jail about 20 times for protest, and I'm, 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 I'm fine with that. But I think we've got to start thinking about alternatives. Let's, how can we, nonviolence, for example, nonviolence is only credible if it tries to answer the questions that violence purports to answer, but in a better way. So how do we begin to build the alternatives? That's one. Two is think movement. Think movement. We got ministry, you know, you, you're, serving the hungry and feeding the hungry and all, that's terrific. You're building models, that's also good. But ministry can't reach enough people. Models can't take in enough folks. Ministry models to movement. Finally, you've got to think movement. Only movement can change the big stuff. So build alternatives, solve the problems in a different way than just protesting them. And think movement. I think thinking movement. And that means training. We're doing training now. That's why, you know, people are signing up all over the country. Trainings, networking. We're in kind of a pre-movement place where you build networks and infrastructure and training. And we have this whole emerging leaders track. 200 young activists under 30 come every spring for a training track. And we call them not future leaders, but emerging leaders are already leading. So how do you raise up a new generation for a movement? That's our question right now. Okay, last three. You try and be brief, and I'll try and be briefer than I've been. 
We'll finish up three more questions. She pretty much stole my question. Okay. <laughs> but um, you were talking earlier how um, you shouldn't join politics. You should try and find a way to change it. But all of us were pretty much born into this society where we are ruled by the majority, but less than half of us vote. So I'm curious how someone who I kind of fit the stereotype you are talking about earlier, spiritual, I care, how are we supposed to start this movement? Like, how do we become organized? How do we give voice? And how do we try and influence this body politic without becoming part of it and becoming subject to the afflictions that plague it right now? Mm -hmm. I want to be clear. Phil Wagerman made a point this afternoon that I want to emphasize as important. He said, don't, dis don't disparage people who see politics as their vocation and run for office. One of my Harvard students is running for Congress in Cincinnati in Ohio and is going to win. Uh, he's a pro-life Catholic Democrat. He's going to win and it uh, unseated an entrenched member of Congress. Um, and, and I had dinner with him the other night and I'm excited about John Cranley's campaign. Uh, so I'm all for that. But John understands that unless we can build movements, people like him, even on the inside, won't be as effective. So how do we, how do we, how do we learn how to organize and mobilize we have three basic goals back home we talk about every single day. One, how to reach more people. We're creating kind of a media company. How to online blogging, we're going to probably start a, you, you, even a radio program. How do we reach more people? Two, how do you mobilize people? And three, how does that change policy? Uh, someone Dick Celeste knows, I'm sure, Tony Hall, congressman, former congressman from Dayton, Ohio, is on my board. He's a good friend. Tony says, and I'd be interested to know if Dick thinks this is true, Tony says 100 committed people in any congressional district with a couple of spark plugs, meaning visible leaders, can move a member of Congress on anything. Because they all want to keep the peace, they all want to get along, they don't want trouble. 100 people seriously organized and trained, and not just writing letters and emails, but in a relationship, a constant kind of relationship, uh, can move a member of Congress on most things. So we're thinking of trying that. <laughs> a very specific policy of mobilizing a hundred key activists in every congressional district to move them on the issues that we together care about. So it's, it's organizing, it's training, it's networking. It's beginning to think of your life not as, uh, as an urban plunge or a social justice plunge. I'm all for that. You build a house for habitat. You go meet kids who live on, live on garbage dumps in Mexico. I'm all for that. Activists who do that, this is great. But that's only the entryway. That's the, that's the door you walk through. I'm looking for people who want to build a vocation on social justice. They want to build their vocation around, around social justice as a lawyer, doctor, teacher, citizen, organizer, parent, parishioner. They want to build their vocation around justice. So it's beginning to think of yourself in a long-term arc toward how do you create, how do you, it's a different kind of resume building, I suppose. How do you, we have an internship program. I just had dinner with our new batch the night before I came here. We have, uh, let's see, about 100 applications for 10 positions. And, and uh, those students are going to have a year of formation. It's going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. 
So we're working hard now to create kind of places and moments and structures and, and sessions where a new generation can get the skills and training and the perspective and the relationships that they need to build a long-term vocation for social justice. Two more. Thank you. I, I want to be one of the hundred. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I, I'm not, I always forget the, the, um, the marketing stuff, but if you want to sign up, sojo, sojo.net, it's free. Um, that's the place to go for the weekly email newsletter, links, resources, action opportunities, internship programs, other programs, sojo.net, and Sojo Mail is the weekly email. So now we're going to about a quarter million people and growing 10,000 a month back home. Yeah. Yeah, hi. I got a comment and a question, so yeah. I'll talk fast. Uh, comment, uh, in terms of the moral value of religion, whether it does more harm than good, I know a lot of evil's been done in the name of uh, religion, but I think on the positive side of the ledger, you also have to count people like me. Uh, on November 24th, I'll be celebrating 20 years as a recovering alcoholic. And I can assure you, if I didn't believe in God deep down in my gut, I wouldn't be here to talk to you today. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the question is this. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote, as best I can recall it, from an article about the religious right that appeared in Rolling Stone magazine roughly 10, 12 years ago. The uh, surprisingly sympathetic article said something like this near the end. Uh, these people on the religious right are deeply concerned about what they perceive as a moral decline in America. And they're right. There is a moral decline in America. The problem is they think it's all because everybody's having too much sex. <laughs> I wondered what you thought of that because I... I, I do get the impression sometimes that the religious right is offering the wrong solutions to the right questions. And one of the reasons they've gotten so much mileage is because they've been talking in a vacuum. Uh, so I wondered if you thought, if you saw anything in that quote and, uh, and saw a potential with, to fill that moral vacuum with something more constructive. The religious right was created by the political right. There were meetings. I could tell you who was there. They made deals. They made bargains. Give us your membership list. Give us your database. We'll turn our computers on them, and we'll mobilize a constituency to help us win elections on one side of the aisle. Religion was going to be used and abused and manipulated for very partisan purposes. And they would appeal to issues that do, in fact, strike responsive chords among a lot of people. I want to say, I think moral values ought to be the substance of our political discourse. Whoever wins the values debate will probably shape the future of American politics. We're in an election cycle now. You're hearing lots about moral values. And I want to have that conversation, but wider and deeper than we've had it before. I wasn't going to share this tonight, but I will since your question got raised. I was in the Springs a while back uh, for a conversation, a debate, over at the, um, the headquarters of Focus on the family. And 
It was with James Dobson's top policy people, and it was this conversation that your question was raising. And I surprised them by saying, you know, I'm with you guys on how important or what a crisis the breakup of the family really is. My neighborhood has 80% single-parent families back in D.C. You can't overcome poverty with 80% single-parent families. You can't do it. You've got to reweave the bonds of family, extended family, community, neighborhood, so kids don't fall between the cracks. So I'm with you. The breakdown of the family is really important. But please explain to me how that's the fault of gay and lesbian people. I just don't get it. Help me understand that. For an hour and a half, the chief policy people, that focus on the family, conceded the point. They said, okay, Jim, we concede. Family breakdown is due more to, as they put it, heterosexual dysfunction than to homosexuals, as they put it. But, they said, we can't speak for our fundraising department. And that's the issue. Cal Thomas is a conservative columnist. He wrote a very important book called Blinded by Might. He was Jerry Falwell's public relations guy. Cal's a conservative still, but he doesn't like the way issues were used for fundraising, scapegoating, fundraising, divisive purposes. I want to have a moral values conversation. We're losing, an article in the Post this week, we're losing marriage in this country. That's a big deal. That's a big concern of mine. How do we reweave the bonds that make people commit to each other and be faithful to each other and raise their kids? Parenting is the most important job in the world and the hardest. And when I say to audiences of people, parenting in America has become a countercultural activity. All parents nod their heads liberals or conservatives. If we can help people with parenting and kids and uh, helping marriages stay together and stay alive and be vital and be fair and be equitable, we will be doing so much more for family values and scapegoating people who've got almost nothing to do with the breakdown of heterosexual marriages and families. So let's have a serious moral values conversation, but not one that's politically defined just to win votes, just to win votes. Last question. Um, on that note, I have a parenting question. Um, how would you address a young person, and young person I mean, you know, five, six, this size. Um, their fears when they're tied to religion. I had a friend of my daughter's ask, um, why would God let a shooter into our school about a week or two ago, which is a tough question to answer. So I wondered what, two or three suggestions you would have for parents to be able to give directly to their kids and how to raise them um, in, in a religious political climate? <laughs> how to raise our kids. Well, a little small question here for, for, for the end. Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I, uh, uh, I learn more about that every single day. I, I'm a Little League baseball coach, and, uh, and I, I'm just... I'm really into it, you know, on Saturdays, and I just stand there on the sidelines, and between every pitch, I'm 
you know, shouting out these encouragements. <laughs> and these, these parents come and saying, you know, you should write all this stuff down because these are kind of lessons for life. I said, what do you mean? Like, well, well when you say, pretend the ball is, pretend, act like the ball's going to come to you. They said, that's good for all of us. You know? <laughs> pretend like the ball's going to come to you. You know? so, so, you know, I don't know. I, with, our, with, with my boys, and they're just eight and three, so we're just getting started. We haven't faced a lot of the stuff that you all have faced yet. But I think, um, I think you know, what you do is probably more important than even what you say. Um, how you live probably more important than what you teach, what they see more than just what they hear, um, what kind of influences you put in their lives. We have this guest room, it's always full of people and, and we get blessed with wonderful people who come through and that meet our kids and our kids just get to meet all these great people. So the other night we're, we're praying, and just the four of us, and Jack, I said, who wants to pray? And Jack says, me, me, he's a three-year-old. And we're, we're all holding hands and bowing our heads, and he's not praying. And I look up, and Jack says, but there's not enough people. <laughs> you know, we didn't have the quorum, you know. <laughs> we usually had people there with us at dinner at night. So for them, I think, f- filling in their lives with the people and ideas and, and commitments and you know, Luca marched with us last uh, Pentecost. We marched to the Capitol. John Lewis met us at the Capitol. You know, 800 faith-based organization leaders. And John Lewis of, of SCLC fame met us. And, and we're, it's raining, and he's talking about marching in the rain. So Luke wanted to march in the front. He's marching there with Tony Campolo and Mary Nelson, all these great people. And, and I just was just so thrilled at what he said. Dad, I want to go to jail today. <laughs> I say, well, we're not going to jail today, but you'll get your chance. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, let me just finish by saying uh, that um, in Washington D.C., you know, I often talk to people who come to lobby, come to talk to members of Congress before they speak to them. I talk to them, and I often say, I want you to not waste your valuable time. I want you to recognize, you know, who the members of Congress are. They're the ones who are on Capitol Hill. And they're the ones walking around with their fingers up in the air. And then they're always going like this. They're licking their fingers to see which way the wind is blowing. And I know people like Tony Hall and John Lewis and Mark Hatfield who would do whatever they thought was right, even if it lost them the next election. But most aren't like that. And so we think that by... Replacing one wet-fingered politician with another, that you can change a country. And King never believed that, or Gandhi. The great movement practitioners knew, to change a nation, you can't just replace one wet-fingered Paul with another. You've got to change the wind. Change the way the wind is blowing. And then the ones who would do the right thing, no matter what, they'll come with you. The ones who would like to do the right thing but can't until there's some support for it, they'll come with you. And the ones who just want to get reelected, they'll come with you too because you've changed the wind. I don't think we're called just to be um, uh, service providers or, or lobbyists or even advocates. 
I think we're called to be wind changers. It's time to change the wind. And some of you, I think, are going to be the wind changers that we need. I'm really thankful for your inviting me here. I had a wonderful time, and I hope we can stay in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jim. Faith is for the big stuff, right? Well, we hope that you will stick with us as we wrestle with some of this big stuff. We're back at it tomorrow, and we would welcome you to the sessions tomorrow and Friday and indeed through Saturday. So be sure to take a program as you leave and uh, join us again tomorrow night. We'll be here at 730. But there are sessions at noon and at 330 as well, and I commend them to you. Thank you very much. Thank you again. Jim Wallace, we appreciate it.